it went straight down the middle. Then it started to... Welcome to another edition of For the Good of the Game and Bruce Devlin. Our guest this morning moved to Florida, presumably in search of the Fountain of Youth, and found it at age 41. Isn't that the truth? Yes, a very interesting career. Two major championships after the age of 40, uh, 33 victories on the tours around the world, was a globetrotter, really. And it is indeed a great pleasure to have Mark O'Meara with us this morning. Mark, thanks for joining Mike and I. Thank you, Bruce. It's great to be on with you and Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Mark. And uh, as we've talked about before, we're here to tell your story. And uh, uh, there are so many great accomplishments to talk about. But as we always do with our guests, we, we like to start at the beginning. So uh, you, while you were born in North Carolina, before getting settled into uh, to, to California, you lived in a lot of different places, didn't you? I did. You know, my dad and mom were both New Yorkers, and uh, my dad was in the furniture industry his entire life. And so, obviously, being North, North Carolina, being born in Goldsboro, North Carolina, it's close to High Point. You know, that was, at the time, one of the biggest furniture marketplaces in our country. Um, and by, like you said, Mike, by the time I was 13 years of age, I was born in Goldsboro. I went from there to Marietta, Ohio, next to Birmingham, Michigan, next to Long Island, New York, next to Dallas, Texas, next to Tustin, California, off to Wheaton, Illinois, and then back to Mission Viejo, California in 1969, when I was 13. So that's, yeah, that's moving along a lot of places. Wow, so you, you live close to Bruce and I at, at, at one point, I at guess. At one point, uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I was in a, a little town called Warrenville, uh, you know, right after we got married, which is right next to Wheaton, the home of Chicago golf. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about growing up in Mission Viejo. Well, I think what happened was, was interesting. Uh, like even when we lived in Dallas, we lived on a golf course and, and I remember going hunt for golf balls and, and things like that, um, on Northwood and, you know, but I didn't, I, I never really played. I just kind of saw golfers playing this and that, and I was intrigued by the game and my father played, but you know, I never really got into it until we came back to California in 69 when I was 13 and we moved above Mission Viejo Country Club and as you know, when you bounce around that much as a young individual, it's very difficult to make friends because as soon as you make friends, you're on to the next, you know, state and city that you're living in. And I went in the garage and I took my mom's clubs out of the garage. I don't know why. And I hiked down the hill and, and basically just started hitting golf balls on my own and fell in love with the game. I mean, I really did. And it was interesting because a lot of times everybody's always like, you know, did your father or your mother, you know, sign you up for lessons or this or that. And to be truthful, Mike and Bruce, they didn't. Um, you know, I just kind of fell into it. It, it kind of came into my lap. Yeah. Now, was that part of the, the, the moving around that you just sort of gravitated toward the game to sort of be by yourself and, and, and just get focused on something? I believe so. I mean, it, like I, I said, um, when I was fortunate to go into the Hall of Fame in 15, this is obviously years down the road, but, you know, I realized looking back at all this stuff that, that you know, golf became my friend. And, you know, what a great friend you could have. And my parents, you know, they knew where I was always at. They knew that, that I was never going to get in any trouble. And, and being on a golf course, I mean, it teaches you just so much about life, not knowing whether I was ever going to be good enough to be a professional golfer. But just the, the fact that I could go down there and be in a space, in a place 
where I could go hit golf balls and play the game and try to stay out of the way and not get the pro mad at me and I'd pick up the baskets. I'd do whatever it it, it, it really took to, to, to be welcome there at the club because as we know way back then, not many juniors, you know, it was hard to, to, to spend time at a, at, a, at a golf club. So, you know, for me, it, it really worked out in the aspect that being around the golf course and being around the club was so beneficial to me at that stage. Yeah, that's very interesting because you know we all we all have stories about our kids and golf, and and I can I can back your story up very easily, Mark. My two boys got to go to the Champions Golf Club when they were growing up. And you know who was taking care of him right there, Mr. Burke. Yeah, Jackie he Burke. Would, he oh, wouldn't yeah. put up with anything. It was a little <laughs> bit off center. So, yeah, I appreciate how, how, how your mum and dad felt. It was a, It's a great place for kids. So what did you do to, to develop your game? How did you learn? Were you like me kind of reading it out of the golf magazines back in the 60s? Or how did you tend to learn the game? Well, to be fair, I watched, you know, I, mean, I watched every tournament on TV and, you know, I, I think that that had a big impact um, uh, watching the players, watching the tournaments, the courses they were playing. That drew a tremendous amount of interest to myself. And I never really, you know, I was friends with the assistant pro there, uh, a guy named Bob Harrod, obviously no longer alive, but I never really had any formal instruction or any lessons. So I didn't have anybody to really bounce you know, ideas off. And I just was a natural, just kind of swinging, trying to emulate players back then uh, of that era. And certainly, you know, Jack Nicholas at the time was the greatest player. And, you know, I idolized Mr. Nicholas um, as a young man. And I don't know, I just, I, you know, I, I wasn't, didn't have the best mechanics, uh, but I had good rhythm and tempo. And I think a lot of it, I look back at the fact that I used to, when I was old enough, I started obviously working in the cart room and then picking up the driving range. So I hit, I, I wasn't a big or strong, like some of these young players that bomb the ball today that have a lot of speed, but I hit a lot of wedges and a lot of short irons where I was picking balls off the side of the hills and this and that. So I think I developed, when I look back, you know, good tempo in my swing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Very good. Were, were there some really good top light amateur players at all in the club that you were able to learn things from as well? Kind of. I mean, I caddied for some of the players that were good. And then luckily my next door neighbor, who was a, a year older than I was at the time, a guy named Tom Martin, Tommy Martin, he was playing and he was a better player than I was. And so, you know, he was a freshman in high school at Michigan High School. I was a uh, eighth grader at La Paz Junior High. But then when I came in my freshman year, to high school, we had a, a good high school golf team. And then, you know, certainly in 1969, 70, 71, I mean, golf wasn't that cool. You know, in those high school early days, I mean, you either played football or you played basketball yeah. or baseball, you know, some of the major sports. And as Bruce and I both know, I mean, you know, golf wasn't kind of the game that you would say that it is today. Did you play other sports in, in high school? Yeah, you know, I played Little League Baseball. I played tennis a lot when I was in, when I lived in Dallas. I played tennis almost every day, so I got decent at that. But once I found golf when I was 13, uh, I put everything else on the back burner, and I just said I was totally focused and, and intrigued by, you know, the fact that I could go down there and, and do it by myself. And then certainly, you know, having those high school buddies that played and developing a good high school team and a 
rapport with the, the younger players, that was very beneficial. So, Mark, even though uh, Nicholas was the greatest player when you were started watching the game, was there, was there any other player whose swing you tried to emulate or uh, any facets of somebody else's swing that you liked a lot and tried to incorporate in your game? You know, Bruce, I, I, I watched all those players, and I was fortunate to, to, to be able to grow up during that generation. And, you know, players like Gene Littler, you know, who had, you know, an amazingly smooth, well-balanced golf swing. Beautiful. Um, you know, so, I, I mean, it was players like that that maybe some of the younger generation don't realize. And, you know, yourself, Bruce, included. I mean, I, I you know, look, I, 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 would, I came along like at the right time. I was telling Mike this, that, you know, I got to, to witness, you know, Mr. Palmer and Mr. Snee and Mr. Nicholas and, you know, yourself and, and, and Floyd and Trevino and, you know, at Watson, we can go on down the list that, you know, my admiration for the players of the generation that came before me was tremendous. And so then, you know, it was the next step to just keep trying to get better, work on your game, take one step every year, try to improve a little bit. And that's basically what I tried to do. You just put me in a class above my head, sir. Nah, no, no, sir. <laughs> yes, you did. Put me in the same class with those guys. I mean, what a... And you know something, you, you know, that might come up with this idea of, uh, of, you know, doing a podcast with all you great players. And the further we've got into it, the more we realize, boy, wouldn't it have been great to have started this some, you know, a few years earlier where we could have got the likes of Arnold and... Because, you know, the, the ultimate idea with this whole thing is to get one of the four major golf organizations in the world to archive all this stuff because, you know, somebody says, well, who who was that guy that didn't win a major until he was 41? Oh, oh Mark O'Meara. Yeah, somebody said that. Well, you know, go to the PGA Tour or the USGA and click on Mark O'Meara and you could listen to Mark O'Meara talk about his his wonderful career. I think it's a great idea. Well, it just shows that it can be done, you know, Bruce. And we, we saw earlier this, this past summer, um, you know, Phil Mickelson winning the PGA Championship at his 50s. So, you know, the golf ball, as it sits there on the ground, it doesn't know how old you are. No, it doesn't. Right? It's just waiting to be hit. <laughs> yeah. uh, we know how old we are, but the golf ball. That's right. Yeah, very good point, Mark. Uh, where did you guys uh, first get together? Where you remember meeting? Wow, Bruce. When when I mean, it must have been maybe my first or second year on the tour. Eighty. I turned pro in the fall of eighty um, after I got beat in the amateur. And you know, Bruce, as some of the people know, and I know Bruce will probably bring this up. When I was fortunate to win the U.S. Amateur, I played a young man named Kel Devlin. Uh, I believe it was maybe the second or third match. Do you think round Bruce? Of, round of sixteen, I think it was. There you go, yeah. Bruce. Yeah. Round of sixteen. So. You know, you realize, you know, certainly how good Kel Devlin was. And, um, you know, I just have always had admirations for, for Bruce and his family. And, you know, we have, I've known Kel for all these years. And so we've, we, you know, I just, like I said, just a lot of admiration for the, for the Devlin family. And, you know, I, I mean, that's, that's kind of what it's all about. They, they set a standard, you know, Bruce and his generation set a standard for like my generation to come along and understand what the game is all about, understand the, the, the players that came before us, and hopefully set the table right for the players that were going to come behind us. 
And, you know, that's what golf tries to do. Yeah, good point. I I believe that we first met uh, definitely was in 81, but uh, I was talking to Mike earlier about your fabulous career at Pebble Beach and uh, in 1982, you played in the Open there and there was an old fart who was leading the golf tournament after 36 holes. You remember who that was? Well, uh, that was probably you, Bruce, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You probably won't remember. It was one of the funniest uh, newspaper articles I've ever seen. I woke up on Saturday morning and the San Francisco Chronicle in those days used to have a green uh, sports section. And the headline was "Old Warhorse Leads the Open." <laughs> now you just talk about Mickelson winning uh, a PGA Championship when he was fifty, and, and I was, and at that time I think I was forty-two. So it, it just goes to show how how long it can be if you uh, you know stick be a very stick-to-itiveness with this game. It's a wonderful game. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's stick with that U.S. Amateur uh, Championship in 1979 at Canterbury because, Bruce, you had a pretty vivid recollection of uh, that match with Kel Devlin and Mark O'Meara. I, I did. I, I actually walked around and and, uh, and watched uh, Mark play in Kel. But, you know, the other thing that, I, that impressed the hell out of me at that tournament was there were a lot of great young players there. I mean uh, – Probably some names that were were more known in those days than what Mark O'Meara was. Mark, you beat some damn good players that week. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bobby Clamp was there, Hal Sutton, yeah. Joey Rassett. I mean, there was there was uh that was a world class amateur field. Boy, it was that competed. Yeah, at Canterbury for sure in seventy nine. It was uh it was impressive. And then as you know, Bruce, the the history that that Canterbury has held, you know, with the major championships that they've played there. It's just a wonderful golf there in Cle- a wonderful golf course, you know, in Cleveland, Ohio, for sure. Yeah, the, the Mark and I had also had a little discussion about that. You know, we haven't seen a major championship at Canterbury in a long, long time, and and that begs the question: why? Why is that not back in the rotation? Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me, one in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's going to leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf. And that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Pan and Shepard as we dive into them. Insane bets, crazy what-if scenarios, and all the you-had-to-be-there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about Malbatross? Well, I think a lot of it, to be fair, Bruce, is that, you know, the, the majors uh, have become so huge and so massive, uh, the amount of crowds and then the corporate, you know, sponsorship involvement to be able to navigate people around the course. Hotels. Where these old classic, you know, style courses, but you it is fun to see them. Yeah, to, to see them go back once in a while to like Marion um, courses like that. That it, you know, it could possibly happen. And I know that everybody worries that you know sometimes these golf courses are too short uh, yeah. of length for these young, talented, bombing, hitting players. But in fairness, I mean, they create the most drama on the golf course when you think about 
some of the greatest holes in the game of golf are the shortest holes in golf, not the longest hole. Absolutely, yeah. So you you dispatched uh, John Cook eight and seven, I think, in the finals that amateur, uh, and uh, you mentioned Hal Sutton. He he won the the amateur then the following year, didn't he? He did at Country Club of North Carolina. He did. And I think Cookie won the won the year before, didn't he? Wasn't he defending champion when you beat him? Yes, sir. He was. He he had beat Scott Hoke in the finals uh, at Plainfield in New Jersey, and then uh, obviously I played John Cook in the finals uh, there at Canterbury. And you know, it was I, I believe that everybody it, it was kind of my to my benefit for the fact that John was trying to win back to back U.S. Amateur Championships. He was an Ohio native, went to Ohio State. Uh, everybody was, he was favored to win. And the night before I thought to myself, listen, what do I got to lose? Everybody thinks John's going to tomorrow. So I went out there. Yeah, I was nervous. The first uh, 18 holes, I was three down after five and I was thinking, oh gosh, you know, here we go. But then my putter, which I was never the greatest ball striker necessarily. I had a very upright swing, but I was always a good putter. And then next thing you know, the, the table started to turn and I remember never thinking about winning. I just kept, as the old cliche says, you know, one shot at a time or play one hole at a time. And I believe I was two up uh, after the morning round. And I got out to a hot start in the afternoon, uh, birdie in about five of the first eight holes or something like four or five of the first eight holes. And next thing you know, on the ninth hole, which was our 27th hole, John had hit it in the right rough. I hit a good drive. We were walking off the tee. And at that time, um, basically, I, I was eight up, and I thought to myself, the first thought was, oh, my God, if I lose this thing, this is going to be the biggest Lost. collapse in the history of the amateur. <laughs> Great thought, that was the. I know it, but you know how we work sometimes. Yeah. It's crazy. And I said to myself, whoa, 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 just slow down. And we tied the uh, the ninth hole, which is the par five. And so I went to the back nine, eight up with nine holes to go, and he birdied 10. And then I, I finished it off with a birdie on 11, and he made bogey. So you know, to win eight and seven, especially against a good friend. You know, John was a very good friend of mine. We grew up playing junior golf together out in California. Um, so, yeah, that was a that was a big moment in my life to 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 you know be a U.S. Amateur champion for sure. You know, with the uh, with the match play format, the U.S. Amateur, do you think it's more difficult to go back to back than had it been stroke play? Well, it is, and that's why it's you know when we look at the history of the U.S. Amateur and the players that have won the U.S. Amateur. You know, a lot of those players have gone on to have a very nice professional career and or win another major championship. Uh, and then when you look at, at what Tiger Woods has done in his life, not just in 15 majors and one of the greatest players of all time, you know, for Tiger to have won three straight U.S. juniors and then three straight U.S. Amateurs, amateurs. Yeah, pretty amazing. I don't see, Bruce, how that'll ever happen again. I don't either. I, I don't see it happening again either. I don't know how many matches that was over those six years, but uh, that's a lot of matches. Oh, unbelievable! Yeah, it is. Yeah. So let's step let's step back just a little bit and and talk okay. about uh, the the process you went through in high school trying to figure out what you wanted to do with collegiate golf. How'd that How'd that go? Well, I was because I think a lot of times I, I, we got moved around so much. I was extremely close with my mother, and when I uh, we won the state championship, the high school state championship in California when I was a junior. Tommy, my next door neighbor, was a senior. He went off to he was going to play golf at Long Beach State. Uh, the future was that I was more than likely going to follow him the next year. 
He ended up transferring from before he ever went to Long Beach State to UCI, Cal State Irvine. And when I finished school, my senior year, um, I had a couple different recruiting trips. I got a letter. I never forget. I got a letter from Dave Williams, who's the head coach at University of Houston, and they had the best team. And it was flattering to get a letter from him, but I also knew that be hard to get on the team. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be able to play. You know, if I go to University of Houston, and it's 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 away from home and. And then I also had, I went on a recruiting trip with my father up to L.A. because UCLA was getting ready to start their golf program, which would, be my, would have been my freshman year in college. And Eddie Marins, the pro at Bel Air, was going to be the head coach at, at UCLA Bruins for their golf team. And so my dad and I drove up to Bel Air. We had lunch with Mr. Marins. Of course, you know, I had a sport coat on. I got my hair cut. Mr. Marins is a very intimidating guy yeah. for a young, <laughs> you know, 18-year-old Southern California guy. A kind of a surfer dude. Um, we had lunch at Bel Air. Then we went over and did a tour of UCLA, the campus. And we were driving back to Mission Viejo with my father and I. And my dad's like, Mark, you should, you know, this is the school. You know, they, they're going to start their golf program. Mr. Marin's is a great guy. He's a great teacher. Um, you know, UCLA's got an unbelievable history, the basketball program, you know, Coach Wooden, yeah. all this stuff. And, I, and I, I let my dad speak. And then I finally looked over at my father and I said, Dad, you know, first of all, I'm not going to play basketball. I'm going to play <laughs> <No>. golf. <laughs> and number two, if I go to UCLA, like I was a BC student, I was an okay student, a little above average, obviously. I said, if I go to UCLA, I'm going to have to study so hard that I won't be able to play any golf at all. So you know what, Pops? I'm going to go to Long Beach State. And he was so disappointed, but I loved the coach there. His name was Don Reed. He was the ex-football coach. They don't have a football program anymore but Mr. Reed was the football coach for a while at, at Long Beach State. It was close to home. I knew I could get my degree and my education there. I knew I was going to play my freshman year. There was a couple players there that recruited me, Bo Baugh, Laura Baugh's brother, a guy named Mike Krantz. They were both there at at, uh, at Long Beach State. And to be fair, I could commute and I wanted to stay at home and I commuted back and forth. It wasn't a bad drive. It was like back in those days it wasn't that crowded in Southern California. It was a 35 minute commute. And uh, I think my, certainly my father was a little disappointed in that selection, but yet for me, it really, Mike and and Bruce, it was the best fit for me to go to Long Beach State. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and and it all comes down to you and being comfortable and happy where you're going too. I mean, I I can understand completely your uh, reasoning for Houston. I mean, they had a heck of a team for a long time, didn't they? They were a powerhouse, powerhouse for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Hal Sutton, who would have been looking at colleges about the same time, I guess, had told us the story of his same college thing. selection. He yeah. mentioned being recruited quite hard, and, and uh, his campus visit featured a game. Uh, it might have been the – I may be wrong. It might be the Elvin Hayes-Lou Cinder game that they took him to. I'm not sure. But, but the day after, uh, Coach Williams takes him to the library – and he's thinking, well, wait a minute, <laughs> what are we doing going to the library? <laughs> and Coach Williams look up on the on the wall, and he shows him this 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 row of all Americans, you know, these uh, from 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 Houston. And he looks up at a slot. He says, "There's an open slot." He says, "He said, Hal, you could be number forty two. <laughs> wow! And he comes back to his dad, uh, who who really wanted him to go to Centenary, and uh, he says, "Dad." He says, you think anybody will ever remember who number 42 42 was? (laughs) (laughs) He says, but I think they'll remember who number one was at Centenary, and that's that's how that worked out. But uh, 
So take us through a little bit then about how your game developed during your college career to a point where you finally said, ah, I may try this professionally. Well, I think what happened was I progressively got a little bit better throughout my college career at, at Long Beach State. And I uh, certainly the, the Blossom year was kind of my junior, senior year. I was an All-American and I'd won some tournaments. And then my senior year, like I won at Pas Tiempo, which is now a, a college tournament that's on the Golf Channel, that's on TV, uh, which is an Alistair McKenzie designed golf course up in Santa Cruz, California. And then that summer, uh, I played well. I, I, I won the California State Amateur, beating a guy named Lenny Clements, eight and seven at Pebble Beach. I won the Southwestern Amateur. I won the U.S. Amateur. I won the Mexican Amateur, beating Gary Hallberg in the finals. So, you know, when you, you have a summer like that, and to be fair, even though I, I accomplished those things, like my senior year in school, I still had another half a year to go back and get my degree. So I stayed an amateur because I knew I was going to be able to play in the Masters and the U.S. Open, and that would have got me in the Open Championship too, but I didn't really have any money, money so I really couldn't, go, yeah, couldn't go across the pond. But uh, so I, I, yeah, I had a little bit of confidence, but I wasn't overconfident, not like the young players of today's generations. I mean, these kids are so good. And, and when I, I played in, in 1980 in the Masters as the U.S. Amateur Champion, and I was paired with Fuzzy Zelda the first day, he was defending Masters champ. champ. They yeah, always, yeah. yeah, we played twosomes yeah. back then, right? Yeah. He used the, yep. the club caddy, and I stayed in the crow's nest right above the champion's locker room. And I just remember I was way out of my element. I mean, I wasn't that good, to be fair. <laughs> I think I shot 80, 81, whatever it was. It was somewhere around there. And I remember driving down Magnolia Lane, leaving on Friday that April and back in Friday. Friday in 1980 and my father it was just my dad and I in the car and my dad looked over at me and he goes Mark are you okay and I'm like yeah I'm fine dad why and he goes well you know I know you didn't play that well this week and this and that and I remember looking at my father and say dad you know there's a couple of things number one I said you know uh, I'm not that good you know I'm an amateur I, I you know I understand I've had some of the success in, in the amateur ranks but when it comes to professional golf you know that's a little different ball game and number two, I said, Dad, you know what else? And he goes, what? And I said, no matter what happens in my life, I said, I got to play in the Masters one time. Yeah. And then 18 years later, I stood on the 18th green with a putt, and it went in somehow, some way. And I was a Masters champion. So, you know, you just never know what could happen in this game. And you got to play there 34 times, not once. <laughs> I know, Isn't Bruce. I mean, some... I... I I have I've been able to play with the best players in the world. Oh, great, you know, to come uh, uh, finally have that major breakthrough in, in 1998. Uh, that that Sunday afternoon in the final group, uh, you know, of course, like you pointed out, I mean, a lot of media when I went in the press room on Saturday, they were like, "Oh, you know, Mark, you're on that next best list of players who have never won a major." And, and, and I thought to myself, I said to the media, I said, "Listen, it's not like I haven't tried." Yeah, I mean, I, I've come close. I mean, I don't know what else to say, and I don't look at my life, as you know, a as failure. a failure, right. because you know, look, I, I grew up in a middle class family. I washed cars for a living when I went to college. You know, I mean, I, I, I pick, I did all that stuff, and and I and I and I'm thankful for that. But you know, if I, if it happens tomorrow, great. If it doesn't happen, you know, I'll move on. You know, I mean, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, sounds like the uh, that attitude comes through like it did at Canterbury. You know, what what do you have to lose? 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can't. The thing about golf, as you know, Bruce, and I know Mike. I mean, you, you know, you can't control your opponent. You know, you just and you can only control yourself out there. And a lot of times, there's the, the great thing about the game of golf is that you know your mind can work for you and it can work against you at times. And it's not a sport where you know the playing field stays the same all the time, or you know you're again you're you're in a team environment. You're not. You're out there on your own, and every shot's different. No matter whether it's a chip shot, putt, drive, bunker shot, every course is different, and every day is different the way you feel. So you know it's it's always a learning process when you're out there on the golf course, no matter what age you are. Yeah. So while you might not have been able to have even fathom driving out out of Magnolia Lane in in 1980 that you were going to win this tournament, beat the best in the world 18 years later, did you come across or come away from the experience as something that encouraged you or discouraged you? Must have must have encouraged you. No, it was pretty discouraging, <laughs> Mike. To be fair, <laughs> because. It didn't get much better later that summer when I played the U.S. Open at, at Baltusrol in 1980, and I was paired with Hale Irwin and Seve Ballesteros. Yeah, Ooh. so Hale was the defending uh, champ the, again, right? Uh, uh. Exactly, and Seve was the defending Open champ. So I had I had met Hale before, and, and I'd done an exhibition with Hale later, earlier that year, and so I, I knew Hale Irwin, but I didn't really know Seve very. You know, I didn't know Seve, and I and I met him, and we played the first day, and. I think I shot 79 first round at, at Baltus Roll. Seve shot 78, and Hale shot like 70 or 69. And the next morning, we played late the first day. The next morning, um, Seve didn't show up for his tee time. Whiffed his tee time, and it was just Hale and I. We played a twosome. And, you know, I played around, and I wasn't playing very well again. I think I shot another 79, and Hale... She got 69 or 70, and I haven't told the story. Well, I have told the story a few times. And I just remember on the 18th hole, uh, it's the par five there, and we both hit good drives, and we hit laid up for our second shot over the ditch, and we're walking to our third shots. And I'm walking along by Hale, and I looked over at Hale, and I said, hey, Hale, I said, I, I got to say something. I hope you don't mind, but, uh, you know, I'm an amateur. I'm not that good. I, I hope I haven't gotten in the way out here. And he put his arm around me, and he goes, Mark, he goes, let me, let me give you a little piece of advice. First of all, I can't actually say it because I don't want anybody to be mad at it, but right. he goes, I could really give a crap how you play. He didn't say, quite say yeah, it in those right. words, but it was something like we that. We can edit it, of course. And yeah, the, yeah and, the second, and the second thing is, you know, the sooner you learn that, the better off you'll be. <laughs> so he tapped me on the shoulder and he walked off, and, and I remember signing his card, and I was fine with that. And I came out of the scores tent, and my mom and dad were there, and my fiance at the time, and Alicia, and my dad was like, God, I wish I had had a camera. I'm like, for what? You can't have a camera out here, Dad. He goes, oh, I just wish I had a camera. I thought that was very impressive. I said, what? He goes, oh, the U.S. Open defending champ putting his arm around the U.S. Open, consoling him coming up the 18th fairway. One quite like that. I don't think you realize. Yeah, you don't realize what he told me. But that's the kind of competitor, you know, certainly Hale is. And I've, Bruce knows. He's a great competitor. Great. The best. Yeah, so you and Seve, you were about the same age, weren't you? Yes, because so, you know, compared to today's generation, I mean, these kids, when they're 21, 22, 20, you know, they're already primed to play the PGA yeah. Tour, and they're winning on the PGA they're Tour. They're ready to win. You know, I would have, yeah, I would have been, you know, that was 80, so I was born in 57. That was, you know, I was 22, 23 years of age, and I was still an amateur. And to be fair, Mike, I wasn't that good, and I, and I knew that. Um, but later that year, 
or, or somewhere during that year, what, what happened was I came to Dallas and I played in the Byron Nelson as an amateur at Preston Trails. And I made the cut, which, you know, at that time was a good accomplishment for me. And I remember after 72 holes going over to the scoreboard, the big scoreboard, just to kind of see where I finished or whatever. And I went over there and I looked and obviously O is, you know, close to N. Mm-hmm. And so Jack Nicholas's name was up there and I tied Jack Nicholas. And you said. And so <laughs> that's when I said to myself, listen, if I can tie my idol and the greatest player of all time, you know, maybe I should chase this dream a little bit. And that's kind of what was the really the stepping point to say, you know what? Yeah, I, I should go to the qualifying school and give this a try. Which you did. Yeah, in 1980, I, uh, I got a couple thousand dollars from, from working and saving some money. And I went to Q school. The first stage was in Crystal Air outside of L.A. in Palmdale. And I got through the first stage, and then the finals were in Fresno, California, at Fort Washington later that year. And I'll never forget, I, I made it through there, but the guy I played with in the final round, who actually bogeyed the last hole, and he was the last guy to get his card in the fall of 1980, it was Fred Couples. So Freddie and I played together the final round of the final stage of qualifying school in the fall of 80. We both got through. He was the last guy to get through back then as as Bruce knows, there was a spring school and a fall uh, school. And, you know yeah. what, maybe 24 guys got through, 22 guys, yeah. something like that. Depends and on I got on a, Yeah, no, and, I, and I got on a plane a couple days later. Uh, bar, once again, I had a couple thousand dollars. And I flew down and I played the Australian Open. I played the Australian PGA. And I played the Air New Zealand Tournament in Auckland. And I made the cut in all three, which I didn't necessarily do that well. But I came home with like $8,000. Yeah. And I uh, I got married and I had a Volkswagen Rabbit and I had the $8,000 and I had five guys at Michigan Country Club that wanted to sponsor me and give me like 5000 a piece. And my father was like, Mark, they're, I know they're all your friends. Everybody means well, but why don't you just go out there and play? You don't worry about the money. Um, if we need to go to the bank and borrow some money, we will. But I said to my dad, you make it sound so easy. But to be fair, I didn't really have anything, so it really didn't matter. And I took my 8,000 that I had and I had the Volkswagen rabbit. Bruce can relate to all these things. And I, <laughs> I drove, I drove down to the desert to play in the Bob Hope desert classic it was my first PJ tour event. And I made the cut, made $1,600, which got me in the next week because back then, Mike, it was the top 60. Yeah. Yep. And if you made the yep. cut, you were in the next week. Yep. And if you missed the cut, you had to go to Monday qualifying. Right. And I made the cut, and I went to Phoenix, and I finished tied for eighth and made like $8,000 the next week. So I was off money, and running. Money, money, money. Yeah, I never needed a sponsor. Yeah, you know, that's boom. great. So yeah. it was fun. I played, I think, I tell a lot of these young players that, gosh, you know, I need to recover. I need to take some time off, whatever. Yeah. I played I played the first 13 weeks. I had a week off and played the next 12 weeks in a row. So I played 25 out of 26, 26. weeks. Yeah, yeah. We, we did that, though, right, Bruce? Yeah, I mean, you had to. No well, you know. When you went, well, I was started a little earlier than you, obviously. But you know, my, my first victory, I won three three thousand. You know, that was a that seemed like a lot of money back then. But three thousand dollars, can you imagine that? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, if you if you stop playing for a week, unless you were had some Ford exemptions, you, you were back to Monday qualifying, weren't you? Exactly. I had to Monday qualify twice my rookie year on the tour, and it was crazy. Because the two places I had to Monday qualify for were the LA Open and the Andy Williams Tournament right in San Diego. <laughs> the two 
courses and tournaments that I lived the closest to. Yeah. But it was fun because at LA, I, I had to Monday qualify and it was at LA North, which as we all know, is a very famous, great golf course. You bet. Um, and I shot like 64 or five. I can't remember. I remember putting my scorecard down. I'm gonna, I looked at the PGA Tour fish. I got, boy, I hope this is going to be good enough. Yeah. I won the qualifying. Yeah, you know, I was going to say, won easy. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. So it, uh, you know, and then, and then later that year, I think I finished 56th on the money list, which got me into the top 60, and I made $76,000, and I was rookie of the year. So those were all positive things. But still, at that time, Mike and Bruce, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have a teacher. I didn't have somebody I could, like, I didn't, yeah, I didn't know anything about the golf swing, to be fair. And, um, you know, my next year, I struggled a little bit on the tour. And that's when they went from the top 60 to the top 125. And I was struggling a little bit. And I remember hitting balls at Pinehurst. It was a Hall of Fame classic at Pinehurst, North Carolina. And that's when I was hitting balls in the range. And this young guy, I was shot 74 the first day. I had sent my money in to go back to Q school because I was about 118th on the money list at the time. And, you know, that's when the whole thing came about where this young guy was watching me and behind me. And I'm like, hey, you look like one of the teaching instructors. What do you think? And then he goes, can I ask somebody else to come? I'm like, hey, bring the whole staff out. I need all the help I can get right now. <laughs> and he went back in and then he brought this other guy out and he introduced himself. He goes, hey, he goes, you know, I'm, I'm Hank Haney. I'm one of the assistant teaching guys here at Pinehurst. You know, what's going on? I said, hi, Hank, I'm Mark O'Mary. He goes, oh, no, I know who you are. And nobody really, you know, knew who Hank Haney right. was and this and that. And then that's when, you know, all this stuff really changed. I mean, uh, my swing went from a guy that really didn't know anything about the golf swing. It was very upright, very handsies. I used to hook the ball a tremendous amount. And, you know, I, I went to try to, you know, simplify my swing, maybe take some of my hands out of play, get the club a little bit more on plane. Um, and that's kind of what Hank helped me with. And I went from a guy that was about ready to lose his card to taking about a year and a half to almost two years of changing, which was really hard because everybody always like when uh, we all know when we're trying to help somebody, they're like, God, that feels uncomfortable. I'm like, well, how are you doing with what feels comfortable? Yeah. Not very good. Yeah. You should try uncomfortable. And so, you know, I, two and a half years later, I, I won my first tournament in Milwaukee, beating Tom Watson, who was the best player in the world at the time. And I, had 16 top 10s and finished second on the money list. So certainly I was moving in the right direction. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word, and tell your friends. Until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway, it went smack down the fairway. Then it started to slice just a smidge off line. It headed for two, but it bounced off nine. My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay. Yes, it went straight down the middle, quite a way.